Welcome to Good People, Cool Things, the podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. I'm your host, Joey Held, and today's guest is Michael Keveny, chef and owner of Tavala and author of the new book, Tavala, 10 Greatest Hits, Music and Food. Michael and I chat about his experience working in restaurants as a teenager and one of his favorite dishes, the power of being the hardest working person in the room, and the biggest difference between successful and unsuccessful restaurants. Spoiler alert, these same principles apply to any business. Of course, we also chat plenty of music and why creating the right atmosphere for the dining experience is such an important thing to get right. Let's dive on in. For starters, I would love to hear about your background, how you got into cooking in the first place. Do you remember the very first thing that you made? I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and um, we hung out with these kids that lived around the corner and their father owned a restaurant. So we got to kind of go into the restaurant during off hours and, the, you know, the, their dad would tell the cooks to make these guys an order of fried calamari, which in those days, we're talking mid-70s here, fried calamari was a treat and a rarity. You didn't have, you know, this wasn't something on anyone's menu besides the real Italian restaurants. So um, I kind of got a little bit of the... Um, the food bug from, from that. Um, when my brother, who's two years older than me, my brother, Brian turned 16, he started working at, at Carbone's restaurant, um, which is the, 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 the family that I mentioned. So it became kind of a, a certainty that when I turned 16, I would also work there, which I did. And I started washing dishes and, um, I hated the job, but I loved being in the restaurant and I loved watching the guys cook. Um, Again, this was the 70s, and they were just like this team of um, guys that were all cool. They were really into music. They listened to music all day and talked about, you know, music and, and uh, you know, what they were going to do later out. And I was always jealous I couldn't go out with them. But they, they had a camaraderie. And during service, and you know, just to watch them interact. And, and it wasn't always positive, but at the end of the night, they, they – cracked the beer and they cheers and, and everything was laughed about and, and all, all was right in the world again. And that just really was something that I wanted in on. And so um, I, you know, kind of begged to, to get promoted up to a, 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 a prep cook. And that's kind of how it started. You know, from there, I, I kept going up and up and up and, and, uh, you know, it, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with not, not just the food and the, the idea of being a chef that hadn't hit yet, but just the idea of doing this thing that was kind of out of the ordinary and, and your hours are, are, are different than normal jobs and you work weekends and you, you hang, you know, you work late at night and then you hang out till even later at night and you sleep in and it just really had a strong appeal to me. No, that's super cool. I, I think that's, a thing that sometimes gets overlooked is the camaraderie aspect of everything. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you might be working late hours and up all night, but you have a bond that I think is, is pretty hard to find in a lot of careers. And it's odd because that bond can go away. If somebody gives two weeks notice, like you've been in the trenches with this guy for two years and you swear you're going to be, you know, lifelong buddies and it goes away as quick as it, it, it arrived, you know? And then you form a bond with the next guy that takes his place, you know, hopefully. And so it's, it's like, I don't keep up with 
half the people I wish I did. I'm just, it's not what I'm good at is keeping up relationships, but I've met some amazing people through, you know, almost 40 years of being in the industry. Absolutely. So you, you started as a prep cook, like you said, do you still, was calamari the first thing that you made? Oh my God. I used to have to cut 20 pounds of calamari a day. (laughs) Um, Peel and Devane, 30 pounds of shrimp a day. And my friends would pick me up in front of the restaurant at, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock to go out to a party and they'd be mortified. You can, we can't, you can't go in there smelling like that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I had to, you know, really take a, almost a shower in a little sink and change the clothes and everything else just to be presentable. But um, yeah, so calamari, it's interesting because that was one of the dishes that kind of, like I said, it wasn't on menus. You didn't have the chains that we have now back then. And you could really only get it at very few restaurants. And I just, when I first had it, I always loved fried clams. And this was just a, a whole different world to me than fried clams. Um, but I loved, I guess I, I had a thing for fried seafood. But um, <laughs> there was, when I was... 15 years old before I started working there um, my birthday was coming up and my, my parents said what do you want for your birthday and I said all I want is to go to Carbone's and uh, they said okay well you know and that was a high-end restaurant that wasn't uh, you know that wasn't a place we chose to go on a whim that was a, a celebratory meal and because it was expensive and so um, the idea was that I was going there on, on my birthday um, and as my birthday approached, I was only looking forward to this. I'm, I'm going to have the fried calamari next week. I'm going to have the fried calamari. And the night of the night where we're set to go, um, I couldn't be more excited. We get in the car, we pull out and get down the street. And my mother says, Oh, I forgot my purse. We got to go back to the house. And we drive back to the house. And my mother says, Michael, run it, run in the house and grab my purse. It's, it's on my bed or something. And I go in the house and a bunch of my friends are there, and they all jump out and say, surprise! And my parents come in, and it's a surprise birthday party for me. And I was mortified. I said, no, no, you, you mean we're not going to Carbone's? You know, and I was, <laughs> it's like my first memory of, like, food disappointment. I, I, I didn't want the surprise party. I wanted the fried calamari. I wanted to go to Carbone's. But anyway, um, yeah, so first, first prep cook job was a pretty messy one and of course i wanted to move on from that as quickly as possible and uh and did nice oh man that's a that's a devastating <laughs> birthday party <laughs> it's a bit, bit traumatic uh, all right well, well we'll move on to happier memories then so from yeah Pep cook you i moved... think i eventually got there but uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe just a night or two of, of scarred uh scar memories there <laughs> yeah so what was your path then from prep cook into eventually opening up your own restaurant? Um, I think that it, it was interesting because like I said, I, I love the industry. I love the camaraderie. I love everything about it. I love the hours. I didn't mind working the weekends because when, when I got out, it was still early enough to enjoy the evening. Um, and the cool thing was I was sober, you know, <laughs> most of my friends have been drinking for several hours. So I was, you know, more, more in control and, and I always enjoyed that. But, um, I feel like, um, 
I, I, I moved up in, at Carbone's and, and worked a couple stations. And then a seafood restaurant was opening up nearby. And I, I had a passion for seafood, um, both eating and, and cooking. So I decided to uh, break my longstanding relationship with Carbone's and, and go to this new restaurant that was opening a seafood restaurant. And that was a whole new experience because it was the first time I ever actually opened a restaurant, which is totally different than just going to work for an established restaurant. You, um, you work extremely hard. You work around the clock because, you know, it's, it's just trying to get this place open and you have, you know, as a, as a cook, we had say in things and we, um, we were part of something that was being born and that was really a cool experience. And I, I, I love that. And so I, I love that job as well. And I think that around this time I was figuring, and I was also realizing that this is something I'm, I'm good at. Um, wherever I worked, I moved up very quickly and chefs always come, came to rely on me. Um, and I decided that my thing was going to be that I, I didn't know whether I was, you know, ever going to be a great chef or, or be, you know, a, a creative chef, but no one was going to work harder than me. And it became apparent early on that if you show the chef or your boss or the owner that you can be the hardest person, hardest working person in the room, that that's going to serve you very well. So that became my goal. And, um, all through my career, um, I always had a philosophy that you could be a chef and, and, and if you have a flexible schedule, you can work 50 hours a week and be a really good chef. You can work 60 hours a week and be a great chef, or you can work 70, 80 hours a week and be a phenomenal chef. Well, I always wanted to be a phenomenal chef. So I put in the time and the work and always cooked on the line too, instead of, you know, I see some chefs that like to hold a clipboard and expedite. And I never thought that that was, um, very useful for the restaurant and uh, a good, good use of his salary. But, um, so I, 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 uh, around that time when I was working at the seafood restaurant, I decided that I, I think this is because I'm good at it because I enjoy it. I think this is what I want to do. Um, and so I decided to work at as many different restaurants to get as many, not only to learn as many dishes, but to get just the way things are run. I was very interested in how different restaurants run the kitchen differently. And, and they all had their certain style of, of management and, and how the kitchen runs. So I, I didn't want to jump from job to job. I usually stayed about a year, but I wanted to work in as many places as possible. And meanwhile, I graduated high school and, and went to, um, community college for restaurant management so I could get that a degree in that under my belt. And then when, when, um, in two years I got that and then decided that, um, if I was going to pursue this, I needed to get out of Hartford. Hartford just was going through an economic downturn. The restaurant scene there was not strong. And also I needed to get out of my comfort zone and go apply myself so I took kind of baby steps. The first thing I did is I, I moved to Nantucket for a summer at the advice of a, a couple of other cooks. And I went by myself and I, I got um, two jobs and worked around the clock on Nantucket for the summer. But I got to know all these other cooks that had come from all over New England and some as far as actually uh, Europe. And it, it kind of, um, you know, it, I, and then from there, you know, okay, well, 
let's go to culinary school. Let's round round out the whole experience, and then I'm ready for the big move, which was San Francisco. So it was a progression, and always um, always cooking, always buying books with every every dollar that I made that didn't go to rent was either buying books or going to restaurants to experience someone else's food. It, was, it became a bit of an obsession, um, a good obsession, but an obsession. Just to backtrack a little bit, can you kind of go into, um, cause I think the restaurant management side of things is very interesting as well. And maybe not as, as visible to people that aren't in that industry. So can you kind of talk a little bit about what, you saw maybe that was consistent among the different uh, stops that you had along the way and then what kind of stood out to you from a couple of places? Um, So for 90% of my career, I've been in the kitchen, but there have been a few jobs where I was front of house manager as well as going to school for that. Um, The school didn't, didn't do much to prepare you for the real world, to be honest, uh, the real restaurant world. But, um, when I took, I was a chef at a place in New York and the owners went through a series of managers at the time that I was a chef. And I think I jokingly said to them one time, the kitchen's on autopilot. I could, I could be your manager. And I think they scheduled a meeting the next week and they said, Hey, you know, we thought about it and we think you should, we think that'd be a great thing for uh, the restaurant and for yourself. And as somebody that aspired to own his own restaurant someday, I I jumped at the opportunity because I was in a comfort zone in the kitchen. The kitchen is very, it's not easy to run, but it's clearly defined where front of the house just has so many, you know, so so many aspects to it that it's, it was actually a little overwhelming. I remember my first day as a manager, food was up, the phone was ringing and people were standing at just walked in and I didn't know which one to address first. I remember freezing and, and my sous chef watching me and laughing hysterically and it got better from there. But um, um, I think, and also to answer your question, I think that um, one thing that I always tried to do was to key in on, on what made successful restaurants successful and what made fail, failed restaurants, which I worked at a number of restaurants that failed, um, what made them failures and, and to try to differentiate the, the, the really um, even the subliminal things or the, or the small things that were the difference between those two restaurants. And um, I took a lot of mental notes of these things so that when I opened my own restaurant, I would do the things that I were important to me as, a, as an employee. Um, I would make sure that, that you know, I, I did for my employees. And I think that that was the biggest difference that I saw is the successful restaurants took care of their employees and they, they, um, they treated all of them as, as equals, as partners, as, um, valuable, you know, parts of the puzzle. Whereas the unsuccessful restaurants were always looking to save a dollar at the expense of treating people with, you know, just, just disrespectfully or, or with, with a lack of dignity. And so, um, you know, that, that was one of the main lessons that I learned and, you know, having come up as a dishwasher and all the way through the ranks, it gave me a good perspective on every, every aspect of the restaurant that, um, that, you know, that's necessary for, for a functional successful restaurant. So, uh, it was a, it's, it's a lifelong learning experience and I'm still learning to stay. But I always try to, to, to 
you know, put in practice those, those things that I learned coming up through the ranks. So not, that answers. Oh, absolutely. Um, perhaps not the, the most surprising thing. It's take care of your employees, uh, I think, which I think is a good lesson for a lot of businesses, uh, regardless. Yeah, of and it's surprisingly more rare than it should be. Yeah. Especially in restaurants. And I, I liked the note that you're still learning as well, because uh, I, I think it is certainly a, an everyday, you know, you can, you can get something new out of it. And I know we were talking before we started recording about technology, uh, which I assume has probably uh, changed the restaurant industry, at least in a few ways. Can you kind of talk into how, you know, things today might not uh, have been the same 10 or 15 years ago, thanks to technology? Or maybe not thanks to, but <laughs> because of technology. Well, there's, there's obviously, you know, I think any discussion of technology, um, we have to point to the fact that there's good and bad. Um, I think that with technology, um, you know, restaurants are always, are, are, you know, have become easier to operate, easier to, to track numbers. I'm, I'm a numbers guy and I, I look at the numbers all the time and to um, to track them through a computer instead of sitting down with with a calculator and a, and a pad of paper is certainly saves you a lot of time. However, for many years, including after the computer became a part of uh, business, I was still using my calculator and uh, my trusty calculator and, and pad and, and doing most things by, you know, mathematics by, by head and hand. I'm an old school type of uh, a person and I want Tavla to have an old, old school vibe. There was one night when for one reason or another, due to, um, the hosting situation when, when you're on a two, two and a half hour wait is, is very daunting for our young hosts. And so um, one of our managers with all the best intentions derived a system where we use the computer and I reluctantly agreed and then walked into the dining room and the computer was sitting on a shelf facing the customers. And I, I, I almost had a heart attack. I, wow. I had to shut it down completely and, and just take it away. And I'm like, that just doesn't fit in our room. We are, you know, we're playing this classic old school music where we're, you know, we, we got the smiling waiters walking around where the open kitchen, the smells, the sights, the sounds, this is all, human contact there, there's no technology there's no waiters with head head phones on there's you know and so i feel like um as much as we have we we have tried to avoid modern technology coming into the customer experience and will always and every time it gets brought up at a meeting i always turn that down um you know and, and I, I i would rather us have to work a little harder than to make it easier with an app or with you know uh, this and that. Um, but then again, all my music on all my 12, 13, 14 playlists are all on, uh, are not Spotify, are still on iTunes, believe it or not. And I manage those and I've had horrific experiences with iTunes, including one I'm going through now, where um, one time all my music completely doubled. Another time I lost all my music and, and they agreed to replenish 80% of it. And it took about a week of downloads. Wow. With the, constant, the computer running constantly. And then I had to do the playlists all, all over again. And then recently somebody worked on my computer and all the playlists got strangely cut in half. 
not deleted, just went from six hours to three hours. So now I am having to go on each playlist and adding the songs that I'm missing in the order of where they would be. And it's, you know, it's just a constant struggle with iTunes. And I've been on the phone with iTunes senior IT guys and they're like, I've never seen this before. We don't know what's going on. It's just me and computers is what it is. I just have had bad luck with it. Well, I guess maybe that's a little comforting if uh, if even the Apple support team doesn't know what's going on. Or maybe it's more discouraging. I'm not sure. Yeah, and it's very discouraging for my IT guy because he always feels probably guilty that, you know, these things happen whenever he touches my computer. And I tell him, no, it's not you, it's me. Whatever, whatever in the universe just doesn't want me to connect with technology. <laughs> Which I'm okay uh, well, with. I prefer to put a, a vinyl album on and you know, a turntable. Oh, absolutely. I remember, I mean, I, I always say I was born a couple decades too late because I feel like I'm in, spiritually a child of the 60s, even though I was born in the 80s. Um, but mm-hmm. just, yeah, just putting a, a vinyl on, it's just like such a unique experience that... I think it sounds richer yeah. and fuller. And I don't think, like when I first heard a uh, a disc, compact disc, I hated it. It sounded so thin and tinny. And I remember the song even, it was Amarina by Elton John. And that, God, I was just like, man, I can hear those snare drums are so thin and just, it sounds awful. So I don't even mind the pops and hisses and whatever, you know, I, I, I find that comforting when I put a, a vinyl album on. Yeah, I think it adds character to it. Yeah, exactly. And that's a nice segue uh, into your book, which, I, I mean, I've never really seen this of, of your tasting notes in here where you pair some of your dishes with songs that are either related to the dishes or, or bring up a special memory or something like that, uh, which I, I love that concept. I thought this was thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, and where did the, the concept for that, did it start way back in the early days when you were listening to music and just chatting with, with the other cooks or when did you, you know, Hey, I want to turn this into a book. Well, first of all, the music at Tabla and the reason it's part of the book is because it's, I wanted the, the book to be like the restaurant, you know, unpretentious, simple, straightforward. And um, in order for the book to be like the restaurant, the music had to be involved because we have, um, we have become the music is part of the discussion about how great the restaurant is. When I talk to customers, um, the vibe is a big part of why we are on a two hour wait. Um, it's not, you know, anyone can have good food, good, good wine, good service, but it's the little things that when people are in your restaurant, how good they feel. Well, they, that's what they remember that they may think it's the food and wine, but I think subconsciously that's what they remember is how good they felt in your place. And that's what brings them back. So when we were opening, I was very overwhelmed. We're trying to get the doors open, running out of money. Um, And I had written a menu months before I thought we were going to open in May and we ended up opening July two days before we opened. I look at the menu and it's a spring menu so I had to sit down and rewrite the menu and reteach, you know, re, rethink out the, all the things involved with putting out that menu. 
And then the day of opening, I realized that, you know, I didn't just want to go on Spotify. Or I don't think Spotify may, may or may not have existed then. It was 10 years ago, but I think Pandora did. And I didn't want to just go on Pandora and, and make, you know, put a playlist out there. I wanted to at least do something that I put together. So I sat down and in one hour just threw a bunch of albums. And I, I went with the jazz and the, you know, Frank Sinatra and, and you know, Madeline Perot and, and all the stuff that other restaurants are playing. And as I'm cooking that night and hearing the next song, I would kind of cringe and just, not that this is bad music or anything, but it just wasn't me. It wasn't Kabbalah. And so I said, well, tomorrow I'm going to work on that. And uh, I started to put together a list that I wanted to hear what I'm cooking. It was a little selfish <laughs> and hoped that people responded to it or at least didn't feel it was out of place. Most people expect in a little Italian restaurant. And I heard it pretty often at the beginning. Where's the Frank Sinatra? Where's the Dean Martin? Where's, you know, and I didn't want to go that route. I didn't want to be predictable. I didn't want to, I like Frank Sinatra as much as the next guy, but, and he is on my playlists, but it's not Frank Sinatra's Pandora channel. So I put together a, a playlist of songs. I liked a lot of stuff from the seventies, some eighties. And I tried to go a little more obscure because I get brought down by the, the, the industry, the music industry where you, you know, you're pumped the same song. Superstition is a great song, but God, do I got to hear it five times a day? <laughs> um, you know, and, and who wants to hear it again when they come to your restaurant? So that was an important part of it was to, have some sense of obscurity. What I wanted to hear from people is I haven't heard that song in 30 years, 20 years, or seeing them shazamming the, the song that's playing. And I would always go over and say, I'm your personal shazam. I can tell you who does this, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, and, and when I did that and I was cooking, it, you know, it, I enjoyed listening to that music while I was cooking. It, it kept me going and inspired me. I'm working very hard at this point, you know, long 12, 13 hour days for a 40 something year old is, is a tough work day over and over and over. And, and also, you know, my sous chef at the time, we were just getting to know each other and he'd ask me about this song or that song. And that's a good song. And who's this and this and that. And um, it just became, and then started to hear from customers. Hey, what channel is this? What, what Pandora station is this? What, and it became, started to become a discussion. And then I did another playlist and then another playlist and all with the same and never the same song on each playlist. And then I put the songs in a row that I thought they would work. And it became again, a bit of an obsession. And I take a little bit of flack from my staff on it, but they also realized that people do actually comment on the music all the time. So I think that as, and, and the book was my wife's idea. Um, and Tammy came to me and said, I have this, great idea for a 10 year anniversary. I want to do a book. And instead of pairing just wine, I think you should pair a song with each, with each dish. And I thought it was a great idea, but I didn't exactly know how to, how a song is going to pair. And, and we figured it out and, and we made connections between, you know, this is old school. Well, this dish is old school, uh, stuff like that. But it was very difficult to find 10 songs and I even tried to cheat. I tried to put a, a little thing in parentheses saying it could eat. It could just have easily been this song. And then I get another 10 songs in there, but 
I got turned down for that idea. But um, <laughs> but I, I think we made good choices. And I'm trying to get, and I'm scared to do this because of me and technology, but I'm trying to get all those playlists that we have on Spotify for public consumption, so to speak. I'm trying trying to get my daughter to do that for me. She's 14, so she's got a busy uh, social schedule right now. So. <laughs> but hopefully that that'll happen soon because I I think it's it's it would be fun if somebody's especially if someone's doing a a, a dinner party based on my book or or some of the dishes from my book to be able to tap into a tabla playlist and and uh, they are they are I I will say without any shame that they are really good. I listen to them when I'm, you know, all the time. There's a lot of diversity on there too. Nice. That's yeah. I, I would love, uh, as a, a frequent Spotify user, I would love, uh, to, to have those playlists available. I'm I think they would, I think they would be, I think they'd be popular. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, and I like it for, for a dinner party too. I was, this is not, necessarily the same thing but i was at a, a murder mystery party and they had a a curated uh, sort of like jazz 1920s playlist going on and i was like this oh yeah, yeah. this feels like this feels great like anything else wouldn't wouldn't have worked uh, and i'm glad they took the time for that so it is it is well, amazing again, the, the touches music vibe and you're setting a yeah. vibe and you know there's i'm very big on the vibe of a restaurant i walk into a restaurant and i assess the temperature, the lighting, the noise, the, the music, the lack of music, the music's too low. It's just a droning background. Um, the energy in the room, you know, all these things create that vibe, which is the, the psychology of dining. Like I said, it's not the thing that you think brings you back or that you think you're, you think it's food and, and, and wine and service, but the vibe of the room is really crucial to the dining experience. And um, I obsess over all of it. I constantly am adjusting the lighting, the, the, the volume of the music. You don't want it too loud, but you don't want it too low that you can't tell what song is playing. Um, the attitude of the servers and how they carry themselves through the room adds to the vibe. The, the, the mood of the kitchen adds to the vibe. It's so many things. Um, and and I I really do believe that the music is is such an important element to that, especially a toddler. Once again, a, a beautiful segue into the top three, which I like to wrap up all of these episodes with. And I I would ask for top three uh, song and dish pairings that are in the book, but I feel like that I want people to check out the book. So how about your top three songs? that you play a tabla that didn't make it into the book, but you still think are worth checking Ooh. out and, and add into Ooh. your, your cooking playlist. Wow. That's a, <laughs> that is a tough one. Um, <laughs> I, I'm actually opening up a playlist here. Basically I have 12 playlists that are all six and a half hours long. Like I said, there's no repeats, but then for, reasons of, of our, our anniversary party and this and that, I came up with the best of the playlist, right? Mm-hmm. And that ended up being like 10 hours long. And so when we play that, you wouldn't really 
be able to hear all of it. So I turned it into two playlists, which is the best of and best of part two. Um, so I'm look, looking here. One, one song that I think will have familiarity. I'm not going to go too obscure for this because when people hear it, I, I want them to be able to relate to the song and, and why I think it goes in the room. But um, Going to California by Led Zeppelin is a good example of a song you probably wouldn't hear on many restaurant playlists. And when that song comes on in the room, it has such a calming effect. It's just this beautiful guitar playing and just this just very comforting, you know, his voice in that song is just very comforting. And, you know, it's nostalgic. It's California. And it just, for some reason, that song just worked so much better than I thought it would. Um, so I, I, I might throw that one. Might throw that one out there. I'm a huge Staley Dan fan. Um, huge Wilco fan. Some of the early uh, playlists had a lot of Wilco. I, that's what I was listening to at the time. Um, the Isley Brothers. Stevie Wonder is a Elton John. The song Heaven by the Talking Heads. Um Sounds great. Age of Consent by New Order is not on the top 10, but it's probably my favorite song from the 80s. I always say it's impossible to hear that song and not be in a good mood. Um, <laughs> so if you're, and I, I put things in certain time frames. So that song comes on right around 10 o'clock. So it's, it, which is also, I'm also thinking of my staff, you know, and uh, that opening bass riff, you know, and just gives the, the room a little energy. It gives the cooks a little energy. Um, I have to say, even though it's in the book, I want to, I want to get next to you by Rose Royce from the seventies, from the car wash plate uh, soundtrack is Tavala song. Like that song, when the, that opening bass riff comes on, just, my, I, I would have cooks that would just look at me and smile, you know, <laughs> um, and just like, oh, for one, it means the night's almost over. And for two, that song is just like such classic warm soul. Um, and I don't know how it was never a huge hit. It was never, never even in the top 10 on, on radio play or anything like that. But it's such an amazing, amazing song. Um, another song that, that has been with us for a long time is uh, Making Plans for Nigel by XTC. <laughs> and not that that's, it was mo mostly in the bar, but um, that song would always get a lot of customer comments. Um, let's see what else. Oh, In the Sunshine by Roy Ayers, which you may know, my son will roll his eyes if he hears this because every time it comes on I said Jack do you remember um Dr. Dre in the movie uh Compton out of Compton and he was in his bedroom listening to a song I said that was Roy Ayers another guy that doesn't get half the respect he deserves such amazing soul artist that's always a good bit of trivia too is when you're in a movie and you hear a song like that 
where it's just like, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. There's, for the obscure pick, there's a song called Wild Safari by a, a band in the 70s from Spain called Barabbas. Um, and this song I got turned on to by the HBO series that was very unsuccessful and only had one season, but had great music in it called Vinyl. And I heard the song on vinyl and it blew me away. And I immediately got on, um, got on iTunes and bought it and put it on a, a playlist. And it's another one of those ones that's better late at night, but um, it's, it's just got a great vibe to it. It's very, uh, very seventies. Well, I'm, I'm adding all of these to my playlist after, <laughs> after we're done here. <laughs> I'm almost done. <laughs> Footsteps in the Dark was the one I was going to say by the Isley Brothers. That's just a great song. Never get tired of it. Um, Let Them In by Wings. Just that song has a really good, just that thumping kind of start to it. And, um, anything. Beatles. We got Beatles. McCartney. Uh, anything that that, that man did. But uh, Let Em In is always a song that when I hear it in the restaurant, it sounds really good. Sentimental Lady by Bob Welch. Bob Welch was a guy that, um, he was the guitar player for Fleetwood Mac before Lindsey Buckingham. And Bear Trees, I think, was an album that he had a couple of hits on, including Sentimental Lady. But then after he left the band, he released a solo album in the seventies and he did his own version of sentimental lady that became a hit and it's, it's a beautiful song. Great song. Never, never get tired of it. Um, Magnet and steel by Walter Egan, another classic seventies dry the rain by the beta band. If you recall the movie, um, hi-fi or high fidelity with John Cusack. Mm-hmm. And he says, you want to see me sell a record? watch this and he puts that song on and I remember this was before I even you know had a smartphone or anything like that but I remember writing down what the song was and, and seeking it out and it's by a band from Scotland called the Beta Band and Dry the Rain is just a phenomenal song it's a, you know again a late night song but really good Harvest Moon by Neil Young again just makes the the, the, the room so calm and just serene and just which is always nice, you know, especially when people had a long, hard work week. Um, it's nice to, uh, to, to bring them down with, with good music. The Hole of the Moon by the Waterboys, one of my, another favorite 80s song. Um, Vienna by Ultravox, another favorite 80s songs. I think that probably gives you <laughs> enough I mean, to work with. It's enough for another playlist. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Everybody Loves the Sunshine is the one by Roy Ayers that I was saying. That's a great song. Awesome. And and a true statement. Everyone does love the sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. Good deal. Well, I think that's a, a perfect place to wrap things up. Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. And if people want to come visit Tavala, want to learn more about you, where can they go? Well, they can come to Tavala. Boom. It's, uh, 
826 Hinton Avenue in the Belmont neighborhood of Charlottesville. Um, you can also put, purchase the book there if you want to go online and purchase the book or any of our other merch or um, just see the menu and see what we're about. It's Havalabino, one word, dot com. Fantastic. All right, Michael, you're officially yeah. off the hook. <laughs> All right. <that's> <laughs> Thanks for listening. And to wrap up with our joke, which friends should you always take out to dinner? Your taste buds. Get after it today, people. <laughs>